Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you the audio from a recent webinar we held on why states should undertake regulatory reform. This is the first of a two-part series on state regulatory reform. The second part on how states can implement reforms will release next week. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this webinar, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Next, you'll hear from Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach at Mercatus, who is moderating the discussion. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today is the first part of a two-part series on state regulatory reform. We recorded several in-depth webinars over the last few months on different aspects of regulatory reform. But this two-part series will be the best of the best, why reform is so necessary, the best ideas to date, and practical ways lawmakers can accomplish actual reform. Today's panel will feature policy experts explaining the case for reform, how regulations actually hurt the poor, why any reform will help small businesses to succeed in today's challenging environment, the role states play in regulatory reform, and why regulatory reform is so critical to economic growth. The second part of the series will examine what two states have done thus far and the challenges they faced in implementing regulatory reform. We will also discuss practical suggestions for consideration by lawmakers based on conversations our experts have had over the last few years with government officials at all levels. We hope this is an opportunity to have a realistic conversation about a complex topic, but one that can advance good government objectives, help struggling state and local economies, and enact lasting reforms for small businesses and lower income individuals who would prosper most from any reforms. And now I'd like to introduce our three speakers. First is James Broll. James is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center and also an adjunct professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School. He specializes in state and federal regulatory procedures, cost-benefit analysis, and economic growth. Laura Jones is the Executive Vice President and Chief Officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, or CFIB. At CFIB, which is a nonprofit association, they advocate for 109,000 independent businesses in Canada on important topics such as taxes and regulation. And our third speaker is Colin O'Reilly, Associate Professor of Economics in the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University in Nebraska, where he teaches courses on macroeconomics and money and the financial system. He's published more than a dozen journal articles studying economic development, and his recent research focuses on the relationship between economic regulation and income inequality. Colin, I'm going to start with you today. You and your co-authors have spent a great deal of time studying connections between regulations and poverty. Can you explain how the two are connected and why legislators should be concerned? Yeah, we, all, we often think about regulations and how they affect businesses, and of course they do. Uh, but, you know, the story doesn't stop there. If we take a closer look uh, over regulation, it's going to spill over and affect poverty uh, and income inequality. Uh, and so I think this is really worth our, our time because it, it expands our, our kind of focus of, of uh, the impact of regulations. So one thing we were able to do is take federal regulations, figure out which industries they affect. And by looking at that, we can tie those regulations to states, right? Because states have different types of industries, right? Maybe some states are heavy in mining, some states are heavy in services. Once we do this, we can figure out how much these regulations influence poverty in each state, influence inequality in, in each state, uh, all sorts of, of these effects. So what do, we, what do we conclude with this? Well, we, we do see that there's a, a notable increase in poverty and inequality. In fact, uh, we find that a 10% increase in regulatory burden affecting each state increases poverty by about 2.5%, right? Mm. Now, maybe 2.5% is kind of hard to get our heads around, right? Just to pick a random state here, if we look at, at Ohio, uh, that, that amounts to about 150,000 additional people living in poverty every year. Uh, over the course of those regulations, right? So this is a huge impact that we need to pay attention to. And, you know, the channels that it affects uh, people, how does it push people into poverty? How does it exacerbate income inequality? Uh, really, we, we see it on both sides. We see it on that business side. It's going to push up the costs for a business to hire someone. But 
regulations can also push up the cost for someone to get certified to apply for a job. And so if you push up the costs on both ends of the, of the spectrum here, we're going to have fewer jobs, uh, less ability for folks to earn, and we see those increases in inequality and poverty. All right, great. And James, I'd like to follow up a little bit uh, with uh, some of the concepts that uh, he just mentioned. What else do we need to know about the economic effects of regulations, including any unintended consequences that they may cause? Sure. Thanks, Karen. So it turns out we've learned a lot about the effects of regulation in recent years. So there's this kind of classic keys under the streetlight problems. You may have heard this story that the man is looking for his keys under the streetlight because that's where the light is. So economists have kind of a version of this problem, which is that they tend to study the issues that have data available. And so if an issue doesn't have good data, then it doesn't really get studied and we don't learn about it. And historically, regulation has been one of these kinds of issues because it's very difficult to measure. So it hasn't been studied to the same extent as, say, taxes, spending, monetary policy, and those kinds of things. But that's begun to change in recent years, in part due to some of the work that my colleagues have been doing at the Mercatus Center. Some of the projects Colin just mentioned used our reg data data set, which was invented by my colleague Patrick McLaughlin. And this is a new way of measuring federal regulation. And I've been involved in an effort to extend that data set to states so that we can better understand the effects of state regulation. And it turns out that other data sets have also been become available in recent years from the World Bank, the OECD. They've created regulation data sets. And so we're, we're kind of being inundated with all this information about the effects of regulation. I actually recently completed a review of peer-reviewed studies that use the World Bank and the OECD data sets of regulation. And my co-author and I, who's a fellow named Bob Hahn, we found that there appears to be a consensus in this literature that at least certain kinds of regulations, anti-competitive regulations, or regulations that create barriers to entry into certain industries, uh, which is a lot of regulation, that these regulations slow economic growth and reduce productivity. Well, what does that mean? Well, So some of my colleagues at Mercatus have estimated that federal regulations are slowing national economic growth a little under one percentage point a year. That may not sound like a lot, but it implies that had we put a cap in place in 1980, said for every new regulation, we're going to eliminate one, Mm -hmm. then the economy would have been about $4 trillion larger, 25% larger by by 2012, just as getting a little, almost one percentage point more a year in growth. That's about $13,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States per year. So that's the kind of money we're losing. Now, in addition to these studies, there's a burgeoning literature that's emerged about some of the regressive effects of regulation. Colin mentioned poverty and income inequality. Uh, Wage inequality is another issue we're seeing. Um, There's reduced entrepreneurship, uh, reductions in employment, negative impacts on small businesses disproportionately, increases in consumer goods prices, which tends to form a larger share of a lower income person's budget. Um, And I actually have some research that focuses on mortality. Uh, So when regulations are very expensive and we force people to expend a lot of money, complying with regulations that takes money out of their pockets that could be spent on other things, including spending on health and reducing risk and, mm-hmm. and increasing safety and other aspects of their life. And so regulations can actually increase mortality in some cases. And these effects tend to be regressive as well, because a dollar can go a little further for a lower income person in terms of reducing risk than it does for a higher income person. Mm-hmm. So just to conclude, We now know a lot more about the unintended consequences of regulation than we even did just a few years ago. And much of this research focuses on federal regulation, although there's there's little reason to believe that state regulation is fundamentally different. And Mercatus has created a, a really a vast inventory of research highlighting a lot of these effects, which we'd be happy to share with everyone. All right, great. Now, Laura, I'd like to ask you a question and bring you into the conversation. You work with businesses in Canada on a regular basis. How does excessive regulation negatively impact entrepreneurship and small business, especially in light of COVID? 
Yeah, well, let me pick up on um, first a theme that James uh, just mentioned on the data and how little data we've had until recently. And it's kind of shocking when you think about how important regulation is to all of our lives that we have had so little data. And it was a really important contribution that Mercatus uh, made uh, to public policy in creating a data set. So I just want to I want to say that uh, because when we come to solutions in a minute, I think data features looms large uh, in when we when we think about solutions. Um, but absolutely, regulation um, also looms large in the minds of small business owners. So when you look at survey data from small businesses, both in the U.S. and Canada, what you find is wh- what they are concerned about at the top of the list typically is taxation and very. Very close behind that is the regulatory burden and a a big concern about excessive regulation. I'll make a bit of a distinction here between um, justified regulation and excessive regulation, which is sometimes colloquially referred to as red tape. And I think there is an an important difference there. Um, But businesses are very concerned about that excessive uh, regulation. Most small business owners have no issue complying with rules that they believe are are delivering um, good benefits, Uh, but they do say by the way, that about, you know, probably about 30% of the burden is in that excessive category that's based on survey data. And what we find when we um, look at surveys of small businesses in both countries is that there is this regressive impact. And it's not surprising because bigger businesses have more employees, so they can spread out these costs and they're producing more, so they can spread out the cost of regulation over a larger um, employee base and over larger amounts of output. So one way that um, we've looked at this at at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, which is consistent with some OECD work, is to look at the per employee costs of regulation. And what you find there is that uh, the smallest businesses, depending on whether you're looking at Canadian or U.S. data, are paying, you know, four to six times more than the largest businesses on a per employee basis um, to comply with regulation. So you can see that clearly is going to put them at at a competitive disadvantage and most businesses say that it, excessive regulation, the majority in both countries are saying, has a negative impact on productivity and growth, which is um, not at all surprising. Um, one other thing we ask businesses is, you know, what would you do if the costs were reduced? And what we find there is investing in in new technology, uh, increasing employee wages, um, hiring additional staff, uh, investing in training. These are all on the list of things that they would do if some resources were freed up. And I think that's important because it speaks to uh, growth and productivity in the future. And it also suggests that the red tape part of regulation is something that we really can't afford at the best of times. But I just want to end with the comment that we are not in the best of times. And as governments look forward and look at how are we going to deal with um, the huge the economic shock of a generation that we're facing with the COVID-19 crisis, I think that reducing um, red tape has to be high on that list because, you know, uh, growth, uh, getting back to, um, you know, better levels of employment, these things are going to, I imagine, loom, loom large in, in both Canada and also uh, there in the U.S. If I can ask a follow-up, Laura, you had mentioned that it's four to six times more costly uh, for uh, small businesses. Can you give us a dollar number on that, whether it's uh, Canadian or U.S.? Yeah, I can give you both the Canadian and U.S. dollar amounts. Now, they're a little, the, the, uh, we haven't um, updated the study in a little while, so these are basement floor estimates because they'll be higher now, but for, for um the average of the two countries is about $5,000 uh, per employee. So in Canada, that's a bit higher at $6,000. Uh, U.S. Wow. is 4000 and, and change. And in both countries, what you're seeing is essentially you could call regulation a regressive tax um, because that's what it is. It's hitting the smaller businesses hardest. You know, the other survey result that I didn't mention that's interesting because, you know, it speaks to a lot of, there's a lot of economic literature on, um, as James mentioned on it, it being a barrier to entry uh, for firms and a barrier to entrepreneurship. Over half of businesses in both countries say if they had known the burden of regulation before going into business, they wouldn't have, they would have said that's not for us. And that's important because we're also facing a, you know, a demographic shift as a lot of boomers retire and exit businesses. And so, you know, making sure that that transition goes smoothly um, is important. And if there's a whole pile of red tape standing in your way, you might just say, that's not for me. James, I'd like to turn to you. You've written extensively in the past on the need for a regulatory review of states' existing codes. What does that mean? And how would a state even go about implementing that type of a system? 
Sure. So every state has what's called an Administrative Procedure Act. This is a law or a set of laws that governs how new regulations get created. Usually this involves some set of procedures for taking comments from the public, uh, getting input from impacted parties and businesses before regulations finalized, sometimes doing economic analysis or having the legislature review regulations. These practices are far from perfect, but they at least give some guarantee that new regulations aren't being imposed arbitrarily. Um, and there's some degree of evidence that's backing them up, meaning that they're a good idea. That's all pretty much common sense. But there hasn't been nearly the same level of scrutiny or attention given to existing regulations. Hmm. And by that, I mean, once a rule goes through all these procedures for these Administrative Procedure Act procedures, then rules tend to just kind of sit on the books forever. There was a study a year or two ago that found that at the federal level, almost 70% of regulations have never been updated. So they're finalized and then they just sit there. And that's a huge problem because even the best designed regulations will at some point become obsolete. Um, So there's three kinds of reforms that I tend to recommend to ensure that there's some kind of regular review of rules on the books. But these are, one is economic analysis. So this is, can just, this is a tool like cost benefit analysis can help ensure regulations are working. Are they working as intended? Someone needs to do an analysis and study them. Many states have some kind of nominal requirement for economic analysis, but it's usually not done seriously and it's usually not done objectively. So one of the things we found at Mercatus is that the analysis tends to be more objective if it's produced outside of the agencies that regulate, which have kind of an incentive to make their own policies look good or advance a certain agenda they're trying to achieve. Um, So independent analysis tends to be a good idea. And most states don't set that up that way. Um, Sunset provisions are expiration dates for rules. Those can help trigger review of some kind. So if a rule expires after five or seven years, then it could be subjected to economic analysis or could be subjected to some kind of review. And then the the last uh, kind of reform are red tape reduction efforts. And British Columbia had an an amazing reform in this area about 20 years ago that Laura can tell you all about. And the goal of these efforts is really to reduce aggregate regulatory burdens. Um, These can be executive-led efforts by a governor, for example, or they can involve legislation or some combination of the two. Uh, But the goal with these efforts is reduce aggregate regulatory burdens. And Mercatus, again, has substantial research on all these topics. Great. Colin, I think this one I'm going to send to you. Uh, Will you be talking about specific regulations that need reform? I think you have a couple of examples of things that states could look at. Yeah, certainly. There's there's lots of things that that states could could delve into. Um, you know, I think one that that's of particular interest is is occupational licensure, right? And this goes right to some of the things we were talking about a moment about barriers to entry, right? Sometimes you've got that barrier to entry for the firm, right? So some expensive rule that only the the incumbent firms, the firms that have been around a long time, can afford. The new firms can't start uh, because they can't meet those costs, right? Uh, but the same thing happens for individuals uh, and occupational licensure is one of these cases where, all right, you need to, to get some kind of a certification, right? But it becomes very clear that in some of these cases, the certification is, is going well beyond certifying some ability or skill, right? Uh, so, you know, one just example here is Arizona um, uh, has a whole host of occupations that they have licenses for uh, and that on average, it takes it's over 750 days uh, to comply with those uh, uh, regulations, right? It's uh, so, a long time. That's two years. Exactly, right? And you, you, you've seen, you know, some of these statistics in the news, and some of these are, are, are really true, you know, more hours to certify someone to cut hair than, than to certify a police officer, right? And so some of these don't even pass the sniff test. Um, and, and, and so I think that's one, one area that is, is really kind of low-hanging fruit uh, for, for reform, because you you've just got this this whole burden that that really prevents people from finding jobs, but also prevents people from being adaptable. Right? We, we've mentioned that we're in a economic downturn right now. A lot of people are having to pivot uh, from one position to another, and when you've got these burdens here, it it really makes it impossible to be adaptable. And and people really are adaptable and can lift themselves uh, out of a tough situation. Um, and and 
really help themselves uh, in terms of, of get a new job, get back on track, but only if they're not sort of prevented from doing that. So I think occupational licensure is a great example uh, of where, where there's some low-hanging fruit for reform. Okay. Would anybody else like to address that? I can't give you any um, examples from the U.S. Of course, here in Canada, one of the things that has happened is, you know, there's um, restaurants very quickly um, wanted to have more patio spaces open. And so municipalities here that would typically take six months or longer to approve, um, you know, for you to have a, a patio, we're doing that in 48 hours and allowing a lot of things that previously they hadn't allowed. And I, I I think that this may be, you know, one of the silver linings of COVID is that it caught, it's causing all of us to think differently um, about things. But in the regulatory space, um, you know, I hope there are a lot of, you know, questions around, well, why or why not? Why not allow a patio? And why, why not approve that really quickly, right? And why not get rid of that ridiculous rule that's requiring hairdressers to be licensed, um, you know, why not? And I think there's more appetite for that now, but I suspect that the window on that will close faster than we want it to, mm-hmm. and that we're going to have to really, you know, push to capitalize on that window. So that's definitely something uh, the state legislatures should look at, making some of these these temporarily suspended regulations permanent would be a good idea. James, I think you might want to address that a little bit. Yeah, I would, I would just say there are really kind of three areas I can, that immediately come to mind to me where there's a fair amount of consensus across the political spectrum that maybe there's a, a problem with over-regulation. One is occupational licensing, which we've heard about. Another are a lot of these regulations that have been waived or suspended during the pandemic. I mean, clearly these need to be reviewed in some way mm-hmm. uh, to see what went wrong. Why did our testing fail to get it off the ground so for so long? And um, other restrictions, uh, licensing restrictions on medical professionals. Uh, the last area is zoning or land use regulation that prohibits building uh, housing and drives up the cost of, of living and housing. Um, and in each of these areas, you could do something like set up a pilot program, which is what Virginia did in 2018, mm-hmm. with occupational licensing and criminal justice regulations, actually. And if, there, if that's an area where there's consensus, you could start there start, or start with the regulations waived or suspended during the pandemic. And then if the review goes well and you make some progress, you could expand the pilot program to other areas. So that's one strategy to think about. Okay, excellent. How do you balance the need with protecting the environment and people's health with the desire for regulatory reform? We've had businesses that have had that have no qualms about the chemicals they use, PFAs, for example, into drinking water, and many other issues with businesses not actually acting responsibly. Laura, I'm going to send that one your way. Send me the fun question. Yeah, that, oh, I, I can answer it too, but I think you'd be best. No, no, I, I think we can all answer that. I mean, I think first of all, there's a there is a big difference between um, excessive regulation or, or what I call red tape and what many people call red tape and necessary rules. So it's distinguishing between those two. I, mm-hmm. I think is is first um, becomes important and targeting those rules that clearly are not you know helping protect environment, safety, health. Um, but the the rules that are important um, and you know have earned their their place, there are always going to be some people who are bad actors, and then you're going to have more typically good actors than bad actors. And I think governments are getting a little bit more sophisticated, and this is a good trend, at, at kind of parsing risk in that area too. And, and especially with, um, you know, artificial intelligence and some of the things that are advances that are going on there, um, being able to really understand where your high risk um, bad actors are, and then and then maybe you know keep a heavy load on on those actors, um, but lighten the load for everybody else for those groups that are are doing a good job complying with the rules. Um, and but there's no question that that tension exists, and of course the pressure to regulate often comes from the idea that if a few rules keep us safe, then double that and we'll be double as safe, triple that and we'll be triple as safe. You know, so um, it, there is also 
um, you know, an understanding that we have to work with around there is a dark side of regulation. It's not all um, it's it's not all delivering more, more, more. In fact, it can. And I know, James, um, there's studies that Mercatus has done on this, that it actually can undermine the very outcomes you're trying to achieve um, once you pile on too much, too many rules because people can't focus on the important rules. Um, so being mindful of that and communicating around all of that, of course, to the public is its own challenge. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think James and Colin, I'd like you to address it as well. But Colin, I'm going to say, Lawrence just mentioned regulatory accumulation and how it impacts uh, new businesses. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Because I know you've researched this. And are there specific parts of the population that are impacted? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think that, you know, going off what Laura said, you know, that the idea that, hey, there's, there's you know, costs and benefits to regulations, right? And, and I think that goes to, you know, something James was talking about, about having kind of a budget. Uh, uh, that that'll really make us think about some of the costs uh, and benefits more rigorously. Uh, but to, to go to your question more specifically about accumulation, right? That one regulation that, that that hits a business or hits an individual, we can probably cope with that, right? It's not that costly, right? But we're talking about hundreds, thousands and thousands of, of rules that each add a little bit of cost. That starts to add up, right? It finally becomes something that really businesses and individuals have to think about when they're doing their books, when they're trying to decide whether they it's worth it for them to apply for a job and try to get the certification for it or worth it for them to, to try to open up that new branch or something like that. And so when those regulations start to accumulate, we start to see it percolate through a whole host of, of measures of, of, uh, that really affect you know, real people, right? So one would be uh, the cost of goods and services. Uh, right, we see that that regulations tend to increase uh, the cost of consumer goods, and not only that, they increase the cost of consumer goods that are are disproportionately consumed by low income households. Right, uh, and so so we see, you know, that are of course one rule that increases the cost of toothpaste by by a penny probably doesn't matter, but once we see all these hundreds of regulations accumulate, then it starts to bind push up prices for people, uh, and of course. Uh, High-income folks probably going to be able to deal with that. Low-income folks, uh, that's going to actually, you know, hit the, hit the pocketbook. Yeah, because it, it it's their disposable income. When you use up more of that, they have less to spend on other things. So it does hurt them disproportionately. James, would you like to address anything with regulatory accumulation? Sure. So I would just add that you can kind of think of regulations two ways. You can think of them on a rule-by-rule basis. Is this rule a good idea? Is that rule a good idea? Or is Or on the basis of the whole regulatory system. And cost-benefit analysis is a way to look at rules one at a time. Maybe there's an environmental regulation. It's cleaning up the drinking water. It has lots of benefits. They exceed the cost. Sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. And that's how you can take into account some of the trade-offs that the, that the question was about. Those benefits should be accounted for in the analysis. The problem that can happen is that every regulation on its own might look like a good idea, but all of a sudden you have 100,000 regulations and the system is just kind of overwhelming and it's, it's hard to comply with, it's slowing growth and it's not working as efficiently as it should if you just looked at rules one at a time. And that's where something like a budget or a cap on the overall amount of regulation can make sense where basically you say, okay, there's some point where we have enough rules and we need to take rules away if we're going to keep adding them. And that, that's where something like a one-in-one-out policy or one-in-two-out policy can constrain the overall level of regulation. British Columbia, Canada implemented something like that, and a number of states have also experimented with that kind of cap. All right. You, you've uh, just met, mentioned British Columbia, and Laura, I think you're the perfect person to answer this. You've written about this, I don't know if it's like 10 years ago, uh, you, you did a research paper looking at British Columbia, what we can learn. So I guess... What can we learn for our, from our neighbors up north in Canada? And can you speak specifically about economic growth as well as areas like poverty and wage increases? Yeah, so James makes a really important point that I think there's a big difference. For a long time, the kind of the state of the art in terms of being a good regulator was having a good cost-benefit analysis in place, a good regulatory impact assessment um, kind of process. And that does can do a good job if it's done done well at at dealing with rule by rule. But there's a big difference between rule by rule and looking at the total burden of regulation. So one of the things that British Columbia did about 20 years 
years ago, 19 years ago in 2001, is they said, you know what, we, they, were, they were one of the worst performing economies in the country. And they recognized that um, you know, one of the big challenges was the regulatory burden, that it was just, there was too much regulation. And it was so widely recognized that this was a problem, that it became for one of the political parties here, an election commitment that we will reduce the regulatory burden by one third in three years if you elect us. And that, um, that party was elected. And then they set to work on, um, you know, how are we going to check this off the, our list of things to do um, and make sure that we have reduced the burden by one third. Of course, the first obstacle they came up with is, wow, how are we going to measure this? And they figured out there is no measurement for, you know, one third of what was the question. I remember very clearly having a conversation with the minister and that was his question for me is one third of what? And unfortunately, I didn't have a great answer for him because I said, well, you know, you could count regulations, but that's problematic because of these reasons you could count this. Anyway, long story short, he came up with what turns out to be a pretty good measure. He looked at regulatory requirements. Interestingly, very similar to the Mercatus approach to, although they were developed on two um, completely separate um, tracks. And they then, the second important thing they did is they said for every new regulatory requirement coming in, we're going to kick out two. So one in, two out policy for three years. Once they accomplished the one third reduction in three years, which they did with that policy, they put in place a one in, one out policy that that has remained in place today. And another interesting thing about British Columbia is they've actually continued to drift down. So they've actually cut their regulatory burden, not by one third, but actually by one half. And they continue to have very high um, levels of, you know, the outcomes we care about. No, nobody would say British Columbia is worse than Ontario in terms of its uh, environmental quality or its safety outcomes. Um, so they have high safety outcomes. They've reduced their load in half. And they went from being one of the worst performing economies to one of the best performing economies um, in the country. Now, there were some other things going on. So, you know, you can say, well, you know, what caused what? But interesting one of uh, one of uh, James's colleagues at Mercatus is working on a paper to kind of tease out the uh, impact that that had on economic growth in British Columbia and it looks like it was it was um, not to spill too many beans but it looks like there there was a connection in that paper I think is coming out soon so um, that's kind of an important um, piece of what happened but Laura let me ask you a follow-up I mean British Columbia was not some conservative bastion can you tell us about the political environment uh, because people think this is a left and right, a big business versus the little guy type of an issue. If you could explain the uh, the context, it would be helpful. Yeah, great question, uh, Karen. And so uh, British Columbia would be, I guess, the equivalent of a purple state. Um, in in uh, So, you know, the elections tend to be quite close, two main political parties, um, one uh, quite left of center, like on based by um, U.S. politics, one would be more sort of a little bit left of center and the other one would be quite left of center. Um, so um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're the main parties here. And what we um, observed, we as a, as a business association and small businesses care a lot about regulation, wanted to make sure that this very successful um, initiative would stay in place. We were really worried for a long time about a change in government. Um, well, we did get that change in government and um, the, 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 it has, um, the, the policy has survived that change of government. I wouldn't say that the the new government is as enthusiastic, but it was institutionalized enough that it has survived and they continue to keep that one in one out policy in place. And there's actually an election going on right now in British Columbia. So we'll see what happens. But 20 years is is a pretty good track record for any regulatory reform. Absolutely. Which states have good processes for the review of existing regulations? James, I'm going to send that to you. Sure. So I'll mention a few. So as far as sunset provisions, Indiana has a seven-year sunset for its regulations. New Jersey has five-year sunset or seven-year sunset also. I think West Virginia has five years. In Idaho, the governor recently issued an executive order creating a five-year review process for their regulations. Mm -hmm. And in that case, uh, not all of the rules are going to be reviewed at one time. So the state budget department kind of sets up a schedule for rules to be reviewed. And agencies there actually have to repeal their rule chapters as part of the review and then reissue the chapters again as a new rule. So presumably 
Some requirements will be eliminated that way, or at least updated. Um, Virginia, I mentioned, has a pilot program for regulations for in the occupational licensing and criminal justice area that's been ongoing for a couple of years. That may be expanded this year. We'll see. Ohio passed a law a couple of years ago that puts in place a one-in, two-out policy that will be in place for the next four years. And then a number of governors over the last five, six years have had red tape cutting efforts of one form or another. Idaho is one example. Missouri had a pretty successful effort. Kentucky. um, And you can look up, usually those were implemented through executive orders, and you can look up those orders. That brings me to a follow-up question. Um, it said, who should take responsibility for producing regulations, the executive branch or the legislative? And if you could, I mean, I'll ask all of you, but James, I want to start with you because you you alluded to this a little bit earlier. So ideally both, but obviously the political situation vary from state to state. Mm-hmm. There's a lot a governor can do on their own. A governor is in charge of the executive branch, usually has quite a bit of authority or she over the agencies underneath him or her. And so you can go a long way with an executive order. And Idaho and Missouri are both examples of states in Kentucky that had pretty successful regulatory reduction efforts through solely through executive actions. That said, reforms will be more permanent and they're, they're more likely to become institutionalized if they're enacted legislatively. And ideally, you don't want a lot of tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch. You want them working together and so in that regard, I think legislation can be more, um, can be more effective. Um, Virginia's effort, as I mentioned, that was done legislatively. Ohio is a state that enacted some legislative reforms. Uh, but I'd say we really haven't seen the kind of overarching reform of the regulatory system like, so like British Columbia, like that model, enacted legislatively in a U.S. state yet. So in that regard, there's a real opportunity to lead the way and, and potentially be a, the leading state in regulatory reform. But I think all three of you are going to jump in to help any individual who wants to lead the way, correct? Absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, Colin, I've got a question for you. Uh, does your research shed any light on regulations and the impact they have on people in the gig economy? Because you write a lot about small business. Yeah, absolutely. I think it brings us right back to adaptability, you know, Um you know, if you're if you're sort of high income and and you've got some flexibility, you've got that cushion, you've got that shock absorber, right? And that not everybody has that, right? If you if you're a lower income earner, it's a lot harder to deal with a big unexpected event in your life or a recession like we're you know seeing right now from from COVID and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that adaptability, the gig economy really allows us. I think the biggest advantage of the gig economy is it allows people to have kind of a backup plan, right, to pivot. Um, you know, it, it worked for me actually. I wound up driving for Uber for a summer because I didn't get uh, a position that I was expecting to get. Uh, and so uh, that that adaptability really matters. Uh, you can pick up some extra hours if you get, um, you know, cut hours at your other job, right? Something like that. And and too much regulation is going to going to limit that, or is going to limit how adaptable and how quickly people can pivot. We see uh, some of the unintended consequences of of some of the rules affecting the gig economy. Uh, California, of course, has has been in the news uh, recently with this. They've they've passed some rules. Right that were intended to, uh, you know, regulate the gig economy. And then all of a sudden we see um, entrepreneurs and freelancers and other industries that are no longer getting employed. And, and so I think that especially when we're talking about the freelancers and, and folks that are, are in the gig economy, it's, it's very easy to snuff out some of that adaptability with too many uh, burdensome rules. And again, I think it goes back to, to what we've talked about, about a regulatory budget here, is that that would really kind of make us think about some of those costs. It would, it would allow us to kind of pause for a moment and, and think about how some of those regulations affect people and wind up increasing poverty because instead of being able to pivot to a new job, uh, you're, you're now out of work. You're now dealing with those other occupational licensure requirements to try to get uh, certified for some other industry. So especially important, especially when you're, you're getting hit with a shock like a recession like we're in now. Okay, I think this question, I'm not sure the next one can be answered. Does Mercatus have a list of the worst regulations in each state? James? So we have research certainly focused on specific regulatory areas. 
certificate of need regulations are one example where there are restrictions on building hospitals or hospitals providing certain services. We have research on occupational licensing, um, zoning and land use policy. So we don't necessarily rank the regulations by the worst, but we focus on areas like that that we tend to think are pretty problematic. And then we also have research about the overall amount of regulation in each state. So we have our state reg data project, which if you go to quantgov.org, it's Q-U-A-N-T-G-O-V. You can learn about our state reg data project and see how your state ranks in terms of regulatory restrictions compared to other states. It doesn't, it doesn't um, hone in on specific regulations that are problematic, but it gives you a sense of the overall amount of regulation that your state has. James, I want to ask you one follow-up if I can. Uh, you've written a lot about pharmacy deserts in states like Idaho. What is a pharmacy desert and uh, what causes them? Because that, that has had a significant impact, especially with COVID. Sure. So a pharmacy desert, as the name implies, is a geographic area that doesn't have a pharmacy. And now something like 90% of Americans live within five miles of a pharmacy. So for most people, this isn't really an issue. But that other 10% can be significant. People, the, the population, they can live far from a pharmacy. Um, so I've written a bit about Idaho's pharmacy reforms. And, it, and Idaho is a state where, as you can imagine, there's a lot of small towns. And some of them haven't had a pharmacy in decades. Now, this isn't all due to regulation. That could be a, a contributing factor. But just low population density is a reason why a town might not have a pharmacy. Sure. There just aren't enough customers to keep it running. Um, but the costs of running a pharmacy have been falling in recent years due to technology. Um, and this is an area where regulation can be important. So technology can help solve the pharmacy desert problem, but regulation sometimes stands in the way. Um, so Idaho has really been an innovator in this area in terms of telepharmacy regulation. Hmm. So Telepharmacy means you allow remote supervision of a pharmacy by a licensed pharmacist through video conferencing systems from another location. Um, so pharmacies in Idaho can now dispense medications without having a licensed pharmacist on the premises, which, ha which had been required earlier. Um, this means that pharmacy technicians can run many of the day-to-day -day operations of pharmacies uh, with a licensed pharmacist on call. They might come in one or two days a week. They might be available to speak to customers on the telephone or through Zoom or Skype. Um, and this change, allowing one licensed pharmacist to oversee multiple pharmacists, pharmacies, can reduce the costs of, of having pharmacies in some of these places that haven't had one. And this is actually what we've seen happen in Idaho, um, is that pharmacies are beginning to open in parts of the state that haven't had one in many years. And the businesses that are opening the pharmacies are citing the telepharmacy laws, a specific reason why. Um, so this means people don't have to drive as far as they used to during, to get their medications. Um, and this can be really important, especially during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So during a time of social distancing, uh, maybe we don't want people who are sick driving long distances to other cities or people in remote areas going to bigger cities where maybe the virus is, is more prevalent. Um, so it helps facilitate social distancing. Um, Idaho also had some other reforms which are helping them uh, during the pandemic. They, had, they passed a licensing reciprocity law, hmm. which made it easier to accept out-of-state licenses. So we've seen a number of states waive requirements uh, that you have, must have a license in state uh, during the pandemic. Well, Idaho already had this licensing reciprocity law in place, so that's helped prepare them. Um, Idaho also has some of the most liberal laws regarding pharmacies, pharmacists prescribing authority. And it was one of the first states to allow pharmacy technicians to administer vaccines. So Idaho struggled with kind of a primary care shortage, like many states have. Sure. And by expanding pharmacists' scope of practice, they found that this could help address the physician shortage. So just to conclude, Idaho was very prescient when it came to these reforms, it's definitely placed it ahead of the curve as far as responding to the pandemic and made it more better prepared than I would say most states have been. 
Right. James, someone has asked that you repeat the website with the overall regulations by state. So if you can tell someone where to find that information. Sure. It's quantgov.org, Q-U-A-N-T-G-O-V.org. Um, if you Google reg data, R-E-G-D-A-T-A, it should come up too. All right, Laura, uh, someone would like to know what, I mean, you've spoken a lot about Canada's experience in the last 20 years. What would some takeaways be for state lawmakers? Maybe a, a list of a couple of things they should consider with regulatory reform. I would say that, you know, when I look at successful regulatory reform, there are a couple of key ingredients. Political leadership is got to be on the list. So you need a champion for this. It's not um, the easiest reform. Um, and you need someone who really believes in it and who will champion it across um, as much of government as possible. You know, ideally, uh, we talked about earlier, that's um, both the executive and legislative um, branches are excited about it. But sometimes you don't have that. Sometimes you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, so political leadership is important. The second thing I think is a commitment to some kind of measurement, I mean, and, and, and overall cap. So rather than looking at rule by rule, if you want something, if you want a different outcome, you need to try a different approach. And while I completely agree that improving um, economic analysis rule by rule is important, I don't think that that's the main thing that's missing from regulatory reform right now. I think the main things that is missing is an understanding of the cumulative burden. So a good measure and a commitment to a good measurement that you're tracking over time. And then a, a, some kind of budget. So some kind of overall cap and um, or reduction target and an, a, a policy to get there. So that can be, you know, one in, two out until we achieve our target. I guess another thing, two other things I would say outside of those three key ingredients um, would be one, if, if there are some outside cheerleaders, that can be really important. So I think in Canada, actually, the organization, the small business group that I work for was was fairly important in this because we continued to kind of cheerlead from the outside and, and make it important with carrots and sticks, you know, hold accountable and cheerlead. Sure. Um, needed. So um, I think that that's, uh, that's a, another really essential ingredient to success. Now, let me ask you just one follow-up to that. Um, in changing the perceptions of the people who are administering these regulations, you have mentioned to me in the past that people became, instead of uh, bureaucrats, but regulation managers. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that happened in British Columbia, and I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat that there was resistance to change and that, um, you know, regulators were all kind of on board with this from day one. They weren't. There was, of course, resistance to change. Um, and that's where the political leadership becomes important important. No, we are committed to this, explaining why it's important, um, both to the public, but also inside of government that that becomes really uh, critical. But what eventually happened, I remember talking to a regulator who said, it's like my job has changed from rule maker, um, where my job is just to come up with more rules to rule to regulation manager, where my job is to really figure out how to keep the most important ones and get rid of the other ones. And these one in one out policies or one in two out policies, by the way, we were James was talking about sunset provisions, which has also been seen as kind of a really um, good thing to have. This is kind of an ongoing sunsetting. And your regulators are the ones who are determining, hey, you know, we're going to hold up and suggest that maybe these 10 aren't, aren't needed anymore, but these, these ones need to come in. So you, you really change the role of regulator. And um, I think that's, that's been really important. And that, that culture change within government is really, really critical. All right, excellent. Um, I'm going to ask each of you, if there's a question I have not asked you that would be very important for uh, legislative leaders who are on this webinar to know, uh, we'll do a round robin. And Colin, I'm going to start with you. What have I not asked you? What are the final takeaways, the key highlights that you want folks to remember? Yeah, I think that the, the, maybe the most important thing to remember uh, from my perspective is how those rules, one, you know, sort of accumulate uh, but that that the accumulation is hitting both sides, right? It's, it's hitting the small business, right? We've, we've probably heard that perspective before, that idea that regulations are going to increase the cost for business, right? But that, that it's important to just not forget that other side, that maybe more human side, right? Uh, so yes, the entrepreneurs are, are going to face those costs, right? But that the individuals, the households, the folks looking for a job, the folks looking for a better paying job are also going to be affected, right? And I think that, that right, James mentioned that one of the, the great things that's happened in the last few years is our ability to quantify some of this stuff. 
And that really that's allowed us to kind of open this door to that second side of regulation that, yes, it does increase income inequality, right? It is going to make the rich a little bit richer and the poor a little bit poorer. And it is going to impact people's ability to get a job and increase the number of people living in poverty. All right, Laura. So a, a couple of um, things I'd mentioned. One is that there are good models out there that this can feel like a kind of a hopeless file. Like, well, well what can, you know, this is something that people have, have complained and worried about for a long time. And the data now is better. There are better ways of measuring. And there are some good models out there. I think British Columbia is one of the longest standing uh, models in North America that gives some good lessons. So um, that would be um, one takeaway. The second one would be there is a dark side to regulating and it's important to, and I think, you know, others have said that in different ways, but it's important to consider that dark side. And one, one of the things we didn't talk about, but I'll just mention very briefly, is in addition to the economic pieces we've discussed, regulation is incredibly stressful and takes time away from friends and family and has a real emotional component. And we're seeing that from small businesses now more than ever. And at a time where we're all worried about mental health, um, this also needs to fit in. And it's a different space. We don't usually think about regulation in that way. Um, but I would encourage everyone to be mindful of, of that, that part of the impact because, um, you know, boy, when your business is on its, you know, you're worried about the future of your business and on top of that, you have to wait six months for a permit for something that you desperately need. Um, you know, that's enough to, um, to really cause some very serious stress for people. Right. And then, James, I've got a question. I'm going to let you answer the question, but there's one last question that came in. Is there reg data for every state? Only found a list of about 10 states. So somebody's on the website and doesn't know where to find it. So if you could address the question that came in and then give me your final comments. Um, there were three or four states which we couldn't include due to their online codes being too complicated or not existing. Um, but we, we have data for just about every state. Um, I'm not sure why you're not able to find it, but I think if you go to visualize data or download data, you should be able to find it. But I, I guess I would just to, to conclude, highlight what Colin and Laura have said, which is first that there are inequities with respect to regulation, which people don't usually think about. And it's not just about harming biz, big business. It harms little business, small businesses, and there can be re regressive effects in countless areas, and there's peer-reviewed academic research to support that. Um, and so that's important to highlight. Second, there are models that you can follow which have been successful. British Columbia is one, and now there are a number of states that have implemented regulatory reforms. Idaho is probably the most notable recent example but there are others as well. And then finally, there are options available depending on how politically popular regulatory reform might be in your state. So there's a lot a governor can do on their own. And there's also bipartisan solutions. So Virginia is a state I mentioned. Uh, Pennsylvania introduced something called the Fighting Chance Act, mm -hmm. which was also kind of a pilot program, a lot like Virginia's, that was bipartisan. It hasn't passed, but it had bipartisan co-sponsorship. So that could be something to look at as well. If you think the political environment may not be very open to regulatory reform. So yeah, the research, the academic research supports it. We have models to follow and there are good options on the table. Yes. I think all of you would be very happy to chat with anybody who'd like to follow up on any of the points you've made during this uh, conversation. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. Oh, appreciate it very much. I want to thank our experts for sharing their analysis today and thank you all for joining us as well. And I hope you will join us for part two for a deeper dive on the solutions for policymaker consideration. Thank you all and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to request a meeting with one of our speakers or ask them a question, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.